Yes. Whoever that is, don't worry about it. It really doesn't bother us. Does it bother us? Doesn't. So who cares? Uh, here it is. The great danger, the great danger, the great danger is today's message. The great danger. I thought it was an amazing topic. And um, the great danger, I can't say I came up with it. I'm reading a book, and I've been reading a book, and I'm actually reading like four books at a time. And that's driving me nuts. And um, I'm about half, more than halfway in all four of them. <laughs> so I'm hoping I just finish all four at the same time and I, I could start on you four. It's a mess. I forget which book is what, but um, I'm getting through it. And one of the books that I'm reading, I'm going to quote a lot. And I'm going to make a lot of points. And I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Amen? Um, a pastor, a speaker, and an author who um, I definitely admire, and um, I've read some of his books, and um, someone who God has used to speak into my life, um, a man by the name of Paul Tripp. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab some of um, his thoughts and texts that he uses, and then I'm, I implemented some things from, from my heart, and God showed me into some of the things that I've read from his book, and, um, and I hope that it blesses your life. But I wanted to make sure I gave that so you can know that some points are mine, but some points I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. He blessed my life. So as we get into this thought, the great danger, there's many things in our lives that could be dangerous, right? Sin could be dangerous. Mm. My buddy the other day showed me a person that rides bikes. And that, he's like, how cool? I said, no, that's dumb. It's dangerous. The guy was like jumping on train tracks from one to another and then over one rock to another walk and rock, and if he would have fallen, he would have fallen down the waterfall. And I said, that's dumb. He's like, no way, that's awesome. I was like, it's greatly dangerous. There's a lot of dangers in our life that you could think of that we could do with our lives, do with our spiritual man, our souls. Uh, and there's one today that I want to highlight, and I might do this for the next few weeks to come, and for the month of March, I might talk about great dangers in our lives. How many of you are ready for that? And today I can't think of a better thing to start off with, with than this one. And I might even be on this one for a few weeks. Who knows how long it'll take just to get out of the one that I'm going to talk to you about today. Before I tell you what it is, I want you to understand something. That there is a great danger, and in this great danger, it could happen in any individual's life. It could happen to anyone that's sitting here today. And the way that it happens is, is when you have a constant contact with the godly things, the divine things, with the things which are what we might want to call spiritual. When you have constant contact with that, there could be a great danger. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Is that even biblical? I thought that was good for us. Right. But it could also be very bad for us. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Because the great danger that I want to talk to you about today is this. It is becoming so familiar with the things of God that it causes you to lose your awe for God. How many of you can say amen? I know right then and there, some of you are like, I knew I shouldn't have come this Sunday. <laughs> it's okay. We all need to hear this stuff. I need to hear this stuff. But for some of us, you know exactly which road I'm going to travel right now. And that great danger is becoming so familiar with the things of God that it causes me to lose my awe for God. I wonder how many of you, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to do that right now. But I wonder how many of you would be able to say, I've totally lost my awe for God. Like, I don't have one drip of reverence in me. Like, there's not even the fear of God absent, totally absent in my life. I wonder how many of you would faith, uh, honestly raise your hand and say, absent, like no awe. And I don't want to do that to you, but I'm thinking that if I were to say, be honest, and we're in a room one-on-one, I wonder how many hands. I'm sure almost, I, I don't I hope not. Well, maybe almost all of us would probably say, I have. We can know the scripture. We can know the scripture in all of its depths, its wisdom, and all of the book, and all of its teachings, but yet it doesn't even excite us anymore. Been there? You read the book and you're so frustrated as you're reading it because it doesn't excite you anymore. How dangerous is that? You can hear and you can speak so much about Christ. You can speak so much about the cross of Christ, his death on it. You can even stand before the cross and before the, the foot of the cross and the foot of God's truth and everything who Christ is. And yet there's little weeping and little rejoicing anymore in your life when before it just used to make you weep before his presence. You can get so caught up in, in being this discipler, being this person who I've, I've mentored this many people, I've discipled this many people, and I've won this many people for the Lord. You know, you've never met someone like that. They come up to you, you meet them, I have 15 jewels on my crown when I get to heaven. And then you have to like give them the bad news. I know, but the crown goes back to Jesus' foot. You don't even wear it. 
Oh, that's a whole other preaching. But, but I got 15. That's good. You want, you want to put more jewels in the crown because at the end of the day, it goes back to Jesus' feet. So you want Jesus' feet to have more crowns. Amen? Okay, good. So the purpose of me getting more jewels on my crown is so that Jesus' feet could have more jewels on his foot. So, so many people, I disciple this, I do this, I reach this many people, I've saved these many people, but yet they are no longer amazed at the reality that they themselves have been chosen to be a disciple of Christ. They've lost that all. Here I am reaching others, but God reached me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? They get so involved even in doing things, even since we're in a church setting, I might as well say this, they get so involved in church and in what's called ministry and trying to do for the Lord and plan for the Lord and, and reach for the Lord and do all these things, strategies and all these agendas for the ministry of the Lord, but yet we've lost our wonder at the one who is sovereign and the one who is planner and the one who guides our every single step and our every single moment. Amen? It all becomes so regular, so normal, that it fails to move us anymore. And these are sad moments. Sad moments when the wander, the grace can barely get our attention in the midst of our busy schedule. Come on, let's just be real. I'm going to be really honest with you. This word's for me. Can I just say that already? Now let's make it for us. How many of us are so busy that we've lost the awe? The great danger, if you haven't caught it yet, it's this in a simple sentence. The great danger is losing your awe for the Lord. That's the great danger today. Losing awe, losing reverence, losing that, that, that fear of God. I, I want to quote John Piper, if you don't mind me. And what a perfect person. <laughs> yeah, of course you're going to quote Piper when you're talking about the awe of God. But I'm going to quote Piper real quick and listen to what this amazing preacher says. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. Wow. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with the world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. My Lord. Just sink that in for a moment. Have you lost your awe for God? Because the great danger is that right there, losing that awe. Um, Tripp mentioned something in the book, and I want to quote him. And he talks about artists. And artists, talks, they, talk, they speak of this thing, this dynamic, I guess he calls it, of visual lethargy. Never heard of it, but now I, when, you take away the, when you take away the definition aspect of it and just read it for what it is, then I'm like, oh yeah, of course I know what this is. And he says that artists talk about this dynamic of visual lethargy, and it means this. And listen to what I'm about to tell you, and if you're taking notes, write this down. It means this, that the more you see something, the less you actually see it. That's good, isn't it? You remember when you first came to church, how excited you were about this building and about us? Right, that's it. Next point. <laughs> now you hate half the people here. <laughs> no, just but, but it's like not as exciting anymore. That, that's... It should continue to be exciting. The things of God should continue to be exciting. The Lord should continue to be exciting. But artists say, no, it's the more you see something at times, it's the less you actually see it. And losing our awe can be like this. It could be very lethal. It could be very dangerous. And I want you to think about it. And this is how he words it. He says this. On the drive to work the first day, you are conscious of all the sights and all the sounds. You notice that beautiful grove of ancient trees and that cool modern duplex on the corner. But by the 20th trip, you quit noticing and you wish that the traffic would move faster so you could get to work. Yeah, that never happened to me in the Palmetto. Like day one in the Palmetto, I hated it. Okay, oh, I love this. No. But some of you can relate to this, right? You saw something, it's so beautiful. You saw it again and again and again. By the 20th time, it's not as beautiful. You're so like caught up with everything that's in front of you that... You don't even see what's beautiful anymore. The, the, that beauty that, that once attracted you, it's still there every single day on that trip, but you don't see it. And I want you to write this down. And you cannot celebrate what you fail to see. You can't. So many people lack celebrating Christ because they don't see Christ. What is it about you? Why don't you know Jesus the way I know Jesus? <laughs> the answer to that is, they don't see Jesus the way you see Jesus. 
And if you don't see him, you'll never be able to celebrate him. Come on. And that's the reality of it. And that's the truth of the gospel. Jesus stood before the Pharisees. And he told the Pharisees, you know the Old Testament. You know the scriptures. You know the coming Messiah. It's me. And they're like, I can't believe he just said it was him. And they went to kill him. They couldn't celebrate the one that stood before him because they couldn't see him for who he was. Are are you guys with me? That we've done that with Christ. Something has happened to you maybe. It seems inevitable. It's not good. You quit seeing and in your failure to see, you've quit being moved and you've quit being thankful. When you first got married, and then 15 years of marriage, or when you first had the child, seven years with that child, when you first started serving, five months of serving, something was so beautiful to you, something was so glorious to you, but You've quit being moved by it. You've quit being thankful for it. You've lost your all. How many of us, I haven't even gotten into the text yet. I'm just giving an introduction still. How many of us can relate to that? Could there be a greater danger in serving the Lord? Could there be a, a greater danger of being in ministry than that person who is leading, who is serving, and has lost his all? If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 145 with me. In the book of Psalm 145, it's a very interesting psalm. One of the reasons why I feel like it's a very interesting psalm is because of this one fact right here. It's the last of the psalms of David. And um, if David is is going to say last words, I want to hear what David is going to say, right? If they're, hey, hey world, I'm about to write... um, one of my last psalms, and I think this is the one that you guys want to hear. I think if David was making an announcement that he was going to write his last psalm and perform it before church, the church was going to get packed. People were going to hear that song that he was going to sing. And because David always had to say something, and especially about, the, about God or about his sin. And if he was going to share one last one, I'm sure everyone wanted to hear it. And here it is. Here's the end of it. Here is the last psalm that David himself was going to write, and it goes a little something like this. I'm just going to read it to you. Just read it with me, and let's flow with it. He says, I will extol you, my God, O king. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 4 says, one generation shall praise. The ESV says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. Verse 7, they shall utter the memory of ESV says, they shall pour forth of your great goodness, and they shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are all over his works. All your works shall praise you, ESV. All your works works, shall give thanks, O Lord. And your saints shall bless you. They shall speak the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. 14. The Lord upholds all who fall and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look expectantly to you and give them that you give them their food in due season. I'm almost done. I'm in the last section. 16. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, gracious in all his works. 
The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He also will hear the cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love Him. And all the wicked He will destroy. And He ends with, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all the flesh shall bless His holy name. How does He end it with? Forever and ever. My God, can you give God some praise for that? That's good. Thank you, David, for writing this song. Thank you. English Standard Study Bible does an amazing description or, or way of describing what David is, the point that he's making. And you could sense in Psalm 145, that in David's last psalm, his focus was on what? Anyone know? On the Lord and his awe for God. I mean, when I read Psalm 145, the awe of God was all over that passage. And it's amazing how he is describing the praise that he has for the Lord and in the manner in which he describes the praise that he has for the Lord, he uses all the vocabulary that he has under his belt that he could use. He, he, he's almost like, I don't even know what other word to use. So he starts off with praise, but then he's like, what else can I use for praise? Because my offer him is so much that I can't just stay on praise. So what are some of the words he uses? Let's fly by this room for a moment. In verse 1, he says, I extol. Extol means to tell how great our God is. In verses 1, 2, 10, and 21, he says, I bless. That means to speak well of God for his generosity. In verses 2 and 3 and 21, he uses the word that I'm telling you, praise. And that means glorify God for his magnificent qualities. In verses 4, he uses, look at all these words. He uses commends in 7. I pour forth in, in 7. We sing aloud. And in verse 10, we give thanks. Here is David, and he's used up all his vocabulary. He doesn't know how else to describe this awe that he has for God. He uses all these words and all these phrases. And then as he uses these words, behind every little section, and especially in the ending, we see that he repeats these terms. And, and, and every time he talks about the praises of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord, and how he pours forth and declares and gives thanks, he says, he says this, and it will be for ever and what? And ever. And that's one of the phrases he uses. Forever and ever. Let, let's get through this. Let's, let's, let's figure out David's heart here for a moment. It's almost as if, as if in David's last psalm, he was making a point. And the point that David was making in Psalm 145 was, I want whoever reads this psalm to realize and to see this clearly, that I am in greater awe for God than I have ever been in my life. He was in awe. And he tries to describe and explain that awe. And it's almost like he's saying, I haven't lost my awe. What do you mean? This is what I got out of it. David is saying this, the more I see him, the deeper my awe gets. Not the more I see him, the less noticeable he becomes. Guys, that's what David's heart was saying. The more I see him, the deeper my awe gets. And as I read Psalm 145, we, we see that there is an overriding worldview. There is one key point that God is trying to make and David is making through this psalm. And it's this, that every human being, that every single person sitting in this room and outside of this room has been hardwired by God to live in daily awe for him. Take that as you want. This means that the deepest, most life-shaping, practical, daily, the thing that motivates me daily of every single human being is designed and was designed to be in all of God. This is the calling of every person. 
uh, um, Tripp says this, it is the umbrella of protection over every person. Love that. It's the reality that is to define and give shape to every other reality in a person's life. The awe of God. The awe of God. I wonder how many of us are in great danger because we've lost the awe of God. The great danger, losing that awe for God. And I'm going to ask you again this, ready? Have you quit seeing and in your failure to see, have you quit being moved by God? Have you quit being thankful to God like David writes in Psalm 145? Have you? Have you? You answer that. And if that's you today, you're in danger. We got to make things right. How many of you could say amen? How does this look like in our lives? I love how this is put, and I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to take from it. Change a couple of the words, but listen to this. It should be the thing that in some way motivates everything that we do and say, just listen to what I'm about to tell you here. I'm going to go on a little rant here. The awe of God should be the reason we do what we do with our thoughts. It should be the reason we desire what we desire. The awe of God should be the reason we treat our spouses the way we do and parent our children the manner in which we do. It should be the reason we function the way we do at our jobs or handle our finances the way we do. It should structure the way we think about physical possession and personal position and power. The awe of God should shape and motivate our relationship with our extended family and neighbors. All of God should give direction to the way that we live as a citizen of a wider community. It should, it should form the way that we think about ourselves and our expectation of others. Is it heading home yet? Okay, it's not. The all of God should lift us out of our darkest moments. There's an amen in this one, I know it. Of discouragements and be the source of our most exuberant celebrations. The awe of God should make us more self-aware and more mournful of our sin while it makes us more patient with and tender toward the weakness of others or the weaknesses of others. It should give us courage. We would have no other way in wisdom to know when we are out of our league. The awe of God is that. The awe of God is meant to rule every domain of our existence. There's more, there's more. And I like this one. The awe of God must dominate my ministry. Because of one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe. I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to answer it to yourself. How's your ministry going? Have you lost your awe? Second question. Have those closest to you, have they lost their awe? If the answer is yes, yes, or no, I haven't, and number two, yes, they have then our ministry is none other than giving people back that awe. Amen? How's your ministry going? A human being, look, 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 look at what he says here, is not living in a functional awe of God. A human being who is not living in a functional awe of God is a profoundly disadvantaged human being. He is off the rails trying to propel the train in his life in a meadow, and he may not even know it. The awe of God. I'm going to share a passage to you, and I'm going to read from Peterson's message translation. And for your notes, write this down. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 5, and I'm going to start off in verse 20, if you could get there. And in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 20 through 25, the Lord is speaking to the people of Judah, and the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel. And as the Lord speaks to the people of Judah and Israel, I want you to catch what the Lord says to them. Catch this with me for a moment. He says this, and, and, and follow my, my translation here. He tells Jeremiah this. And Jeremiah, tell the house of Jacob this. Catch this, guys. To put out this bulletin in Judah and listen to this, you, you scatterbrains, you airheads. With eyes that see, but don't really what? Don't really look. Ears that hear, but don't really what? Why don't you honor me? He's talking to his people here. Why aren't you in awe before me? Yes, me. Yes, me. You ever talk to someone? Don't make me do this to you. Who? You? Yeah, yeah. 
Who else do you think is talking to you? Me, I'm going to do this to you. And, and as he's speaking to the, the people of Israel and Judah, he's like, he's like scatterbrains, airheads. You look, but you're not really seeing this, and you're, you're hearing it, but you're not really listening. Why don't you honor me? Why aren't you in all of me? And they're all like, huh? who are you? And God is like, yes, me. Who else is it going to be? Huh? I'm talking to. Has God ever done that to you? It's me. Of course me. The one who made the shorelines. Look what he says. To contain the ocean waters, I drew a line in the sand and it cannot be crossed. The waves roll in but cannot get through. I tell the waves where to stop. Yes, me. Breakers crash, but, but that's the end of them. They don't keep going. But this people, what a people. They're uncontrollable. They're untamable. They're runaways. It never occurs to them to say, how can we honor our God with our lives? The God who gives rain in both spring and autumn and maintains the rhythm of the seasons, who sets aside time each year to harvest and keeps everything running smoothly for us. Of course you don't. Your bad behavior blinds you to all of this. Your sins keep my blessings at a distance. Man, I could preach right there. Danger! Do you see the danger sign? Am I the only one that... You're here today? Am I the only one that sees the danger sign there? Like when I read that, it was like, eh, eh, it was danger, danger. Did you hear when we started that thing saying, danger, danger? And then weird things were happening on the screen. That's what I saw when I read this. God is telling Israel, God is telling Judah, you are walking down a fine line like... You are in dangerous waters here because you've lost your all for me. You don't even say this in your heart anymore. How can I honor my God who lives with our, and do this with your life? I want you to write this down in your notes. The spiritual danger here in this passage is that when, when the awe of God is absent in our lives, it is quickly replaced by our awe of ourselves. And that is one of the most dangerous things to be at as a church, as a people, as a child of God. That we lose the awe of God and it's all about the awe of self. Because if we're not living for God, the other option or the only alternative is to live for ourselves. Is that true or false? We either live for God or live for self. Do you know that Paul talks about that in the book of Corinth? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul writes to the churches of Corinth and he says, He died for all. Look at this, look at this. He died for all. Jesus died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. Corinth Jesus died for you so that you no longer have to live for yourselves. Hey, real quick, real quick. Let's just be real, real, real here. How many of you have lived for yourself and all it is is a frustrating life? Thank you for being honest. The more I live for myself, the more I fight with Nancy. Ask her, it's true. The more, wait, but the more she lives for herself, she fights with me too. The more I live for myself, I fight with my boss at work. The more I live for myself, I, I fight with my family. Because when I live for myself, it's frustrating. Because God, I don't see anywhere in this text, I don't see anywhere in his word that he ever has called us to live for ourselves. It's always for him and for others. All through these pages. And Paul writes to Corinth, he says this, If he died for all of you, then that means that you no longer live for yourselves. But you now live for him who for your sake has died and was raised. I thought there was going to be an amen there. And for your life died and was raised. You don't live for yourself anymore, Christian. We now live for something greater. We live for God. We, we must do anything we can to get our lives in order, to get that all back. And never replace it with ourselves. And how many people in our families, come here. How many people in our families 
have gone back to live for themselves or they just stay there. They're just living for themselves. Huh? Then that means there's nothing but one thing to do. And that is I am called to do everything that I can to be used by God to turn people back to the one thing in which they were created, and that is to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. How can I live on in life seeing people perish next to me? They need to know Jesus. And you will never celebrate what you can't see. So it's my job that they see it in me and through me. Do you guys understand that? This word's for me. I hope it's for you too. Misery loves company. (laughs) But Lord, let them see it in me and through me. A sturdy, joyful, faithful I like that word, faithful, all of God. Not that it's here one day and it's here the next because of a circumstance. It's always here because I'm faithful in, in my awe and in my reverence for God. Stop the roller coaster. Stop being tossed by every wind of doctrine. Stop being tossed by every wave in the sea. Stand planted. Stand firm. Be the people of God and have reverence, fear, and awe for God. Because the people don't want to ride a roller coaster. Because their lives are already unstable. The husband already cheated on her. And the wife already cheated on him. And the kids are leaving the house and they're a mess. And their finances are not coming in the way they used to. And everything in their life is already unstable. And the last thing that they need is a bunch of Christ followers that live before them. That they themselves are unfruitful and unfaithful with their lives. Stop the roller coaster. Get sturdy. Get strong. And live in the awe of God before people. Man, people need to see that in you. People need to see it, and they'll never be able to celebrate what they can't see. I'm going to quote him again. Paul Tripp talks about how it looks like, and, and I'm going to take away the word from everything outside of here and just plug it right back into new life. How does the all of God even look like in our lives here in the ministry? Watch this. Watch this, for all of you that thought, well, the church needs this and the church needs to do that, and I think the church needs to create this. I'm going to tell you what the church really needs. The church needs the all of God in the middle. It doesn't need strategies. It doesn't need plans. It doesn't need more branches to its tree. It needs the all back. And if the church has its all back, the church is going to be faithful. It's going to be strong. It's going to be sturdy. And I don't want to be something with very branches, with a lot of branches and a lot of fruits on those branches while the roots are weak. I'd rather have strong roots that produce a strong tree than a strong-looking tree who has weak roots. And listen to this. Here's what Tripp says, and I totally 100% agree with this, and this is what it should be in our lives. Every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by the awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear. Children's ministry must have its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. Youth ministry church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teens to see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. Because let me tell you something, Bible games and, and pizza parties and all that stuff is not going to um, give you strength so that when uh, um, persecutors come, you say, yeah, I'm ready to die for Jesus. It's got to be something stronger. It's got to be the awe of God that says... You think your sword scares me? My offer God is greater than that sword. I won't back down from my faith. That's, I'm not even going to get into that right now, but women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and admire of self-interest that nip at their hearts and awe of God that provides that rescue for these women. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in their hearts of so many of these men to the things of God and confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions, evangelism must be all driven. You guys, don't forget what we just read. And Paul urges this. He, say, he says this. He says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved and gave, themselves, gave himself for them. The awe of God keeps us from going off track. The awe of God keeps us from running off our rails like we read earlier. 
The awe of God is what keeps us from diverting by all the agendas that, that we might create and sidetrack us, all the things that might pop up in our lives. Listen, guys, we could get so caught up with agendas and strategies that we lose it and we forget to get caught up in the awe of God instead. That's the truth, man. We don't put our trust in strategies, but in the God of awesome glory, the one who is the head of our lives. Amen? I'm going to share this with you guys. It's very difficult in our lives and in our ministry before God to give away what we do not possess ourselves. How will I ever be able to give people this all of Jesus if my life is not ridden with the all of God? If we don't possess the all of God, we'll never be able to minister it to others. You've ever sat before someone's teaching and you're like, yeah, that just didn't go good. Because you discerned that there was no awe for God in that person. You ever had a conversation with someone and like, what is it about you? Because you saw and you felt this all of God in their lives and it was contagious. You ever been like that with someone? Our lives are to be shaped by what, man, God is doing in our lives and our hearts. And, and the truth is, when you look at every single one of our lives, I'm sure we'll all agree in this one point here. It's shaped by what is the functional control of our heart is eventually what our lives will live out. What do I mean by this? That it's so easy to have our hearts flattered by all these other things that the awe of God no longer moves us, flatters us, transforms us. What are some of the things in your lives, and I'm not even going to go over because we've done these, we've done series on these things. It could be the people, it could be living for their approval, for their words, it could be money, power, it could be for work, you only live for your job, it could be education, it could be knowledge, to know more, to be more. Listen, you could have an awe-inspiring experience in all different things in your lives while leaving out the Lord and leaving out the awe for Him. To a place where in our lives He just becomes the norm and Jesus Christ, His Word and His name no longer excites us and we end up living for other excitements that fail to satisfy us long-terms. Long-term, Christ only is the one who satisfies. Amen? I'm going to read what Jesus says in John chapter 6. If you're there, turn to uh, John 6, 52. I'm going to read all the way to 58 to get into the text to prove some points here. And in John 6, here are the Jews. And as Jesus is speaking to a crowd of individuals, it's a very powerful um, passage in the book of John. Jesus had about eight to 9,000 followers, some believe. Did you hear what I just said? Eight to 9,000 followers that would follow him from city to city. He begins to tell them some crazy stuff like, Hey, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And eight to 9,000 said, What? Eat of what? Take a sip from what? Scripture says, how ironic, in John 6, 6, 6, John 6, 66, that all those who walked with him turned away from him and walked with him no more. Said, uh, later. Teachings are too hard, are too strong. Who could follow these things? And Jesus is left alone. Eight to nine thousand people leave him. And as he's watching them walk away, he's like, and he hears like some footsteps and some grass shuffling. And he turns around. And there's 12 disciples behind him. These are finally the last 12, 11 of them that will do the work of the ministry. And he looks at them and he says, aren't you going to leave with the eight to 9,000 people? And Peter, like he does, always steps up in the front and says, where are we going to go? To whom should we go to? For you have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. We're staying with you. And truly, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, all right, cool. Let's go change the world. Man, I could do a whole message right now, but I'm going to try to stay on the text. But here's something that he teaches. Verse 52 says, The Jews disputed among them, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you, I tell you. Emphasis, right? Truly, truly, I tell you, I say to you, unless you eat. Did you guys see that? Unless you eat, he's requiring of you. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's chosen you. But he still requires of you too. Amen? 
Yes, he knows all things from the beginning to the end, but yes, he still requires things of you. Don't get that stuff twisted now. So he says this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. So there's nothing you could do for the flesh. There's nothing that you could do for the blood, but there are some requirements. You need to eat of it and you need to drink of it. But I offer the body. I offer the meat. I offer the blood. I offer the sacrifice. See that? I offer the offering. I'm it, but you're required to take of me. He says, unless you don't do these things and drink my blood, what does he say next? You have no what? Has anyone ever told you that? That's an insult, man. You, have, you don't have a life. Man, that's something that, don't tell me that. Like, that offends me. Like, Ali, you, me and you are in a conversation. I look at you and say, like, you have no life. How would that make you feel? You have, he's almost saying, you losers, you don't have a life. And like, I don't have a life. And, and it's exactly what Jesus was saying to him. You don't have a life. Because watch this, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, they have a life. <laughs> they have eternal life. But you, you're a loser. You don't have a life. But the people that take of me, the people that see me and celebrate me, the people that continue to live in my awe, the people that continue to eat at my table and drink of my blood and eat of my flesh and eat of my word and eat of my presence, hey, they have a life. And their life is so amazing, so strong, that it's an everlasting life. But you guys over here, that continue to reject the all of God, and the amazingness that I offer to you, you don't have a life. You're a loser. It's amazing what Jesus says here. And he says this, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. My flesh is the true food and my blood is the true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood, watch what he says. He, she abides in what? And I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. And whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Not like the bread that your fathers ate and they are what? Yeah, they're losers. They didn't have a life. Just like you. You're almost following under the same curse as your fathers. Guys, are you following this? You want to be a loser like your dad? So Jesus is saying. You're going to be a loser just like, can you imagine? Well, I don't think my dad's a loser. You're a winner, dad. But imagine someone came up to me says, you're going to be a loser just like your dad. If you think that my dad's a loser, then I'm okay. I'll be that kind of loser then. But imagine being told that. You know that your dad's a mess, your dad's strung out on who knows what, you don't even know where your dad lives anymore, and someone comes up to you and says, you're going to be just like your dad, you're a loser. That's what he's telling them. But then he goes on, and it's so beautiful. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread that you ate, your fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread, they're different. They're going to live. You have a life. You live forever. Guys, when I read this, man, there's a war going on. And these listeners, too bad, many of them, except for those 12, really 11, stay to be his followers and live in the all of God forever. But there is a war going on even in our lives as we read this passage. And it's between the awe of God and the awe-inspiring things that are around us that God created. You want me to take of you, but I'm taking of all these other things too. Hey, how many of you know that the Bible says you cannot serve two masters? How many of you guys know all these different verses that we could go into today, but we don't have the time for? And he's like, there's a war going on between the all of God and all these awe-inspiring things that, you, that are around you that, that, did you even know that God created all those things anyways? The awe of God, it will capture you, your ministry, your marriage, your family, your career, all of you, your awe. And that's what he wanted to do to the listeners here. Let me capture you, let me just fill you with this food and with this drink, or will, or will you be captured by some other created thing? I want you to remember this. I bolded this and I highlighted this in my notes. Remember this, guys. Any glorious thing in creation, any glorious thing in creation was given, was given that glory by God so that it would function as a finger pointing you to the one glory that should rule in your heart, which is Jesus. Someone once told me, I love her, or I've even heard this, I love him so much that it's so hard to focus on the Lord. Ah. God put that, her, him in your life to give glory to him. 
that doesn't become your glory. Your job does not become the all. Your child does not become the all. Your, now your wife or your husband does not become your all. The ministry does not become your all. All those awesome things are all pointing to the one who deserves all the all. And his name is Jesus. The great danger, not losing our awe. So I say this, and I'm going to get ready to end. Have you quit seeing, and in your failure to see, have you quit being moved? Are you quit being thankful? Have you quit being thankful? Has the beauty that once attracted you, is it hard for you now to see it? Maybe you don't even see it anymore. Pastor, I don't even see it anymore. Can I give you an encouragement today? It's still there. It's still there. And remember that you'll never be able to live in celebration, enjoy and celebrate that if you don't see it. I'm going to end maybe with this passage. And it's found in Luke chapter 5. And I really feel like it's going to bless your life like it blessed mine. I really hope it does. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, as we get ready to close up here and we're about to end here in our last lap, I want you to put your eyes on verse 17 with me. Luke 5, 17 through 26. You guys know this story. I'm not going to preach so much on this story. I'm going to make a point at something that happens at the end of this story. So, so just follow with me so you can know the context around it. I'm going to read from the ESV right now. He says, On one of those days as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. You guys remember this story? And they were seeking to bring him in, and they were going to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. It's a lot of cool stuff happening there, okay? Jesus' teaching, tiles are falling, people are looking up. There's a paralyzed man coming down. Just imagine that today happening right here. When he saw their faith, verse 20, he said to the men, your sins have, have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So all the religious people, because religious people always have to complain about something, right? Because we're, we're godly people. Here are the religious people here. And all the scribes and all the Pharisees began to question. I like to say began to complain because that's what they do best. And the question slash complain is, who is this? Who does he think he is that he speaks such blasphemies? Who is he that he could forgive sins? Only God alone can do that. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. Can I change the words? I'm not adding or taking away from the word. I'm not causing a heresy. But can I add some substitution real quick? When Jesus read their mind. Right? When Jesus read their mind. He said to them, Why do you question in your hearts? I love how Jesus always goes back to the what? The heart. You got issues in your heart. What the heck's wrong with your heart? You still haven't given me your heart, huh? Guys, let's just sit on this for a moment. The roof is being ripped open. Jesus is teaching. He stops teaching. And a bunch of friends are bringing down their buddy. And he's like, hey, you're all right, man. You can stop bringing him down. He's forgiven. They're like, no, no. I don't think you understand. We don't want you just to forgive him. We want you to heal him. We got a basketball game, and he'll be great to play with us. And Jesus is like, he wasn't even going to heal him, you know? He was like, whatever. But then he is sovereign and he knows the thoughts of every person that's there, all the religious people that are complaining about him, and he kind of just leans into them. I'm not saying that you guys are, are that people. And he says, 
What's wrong with your hearts? Why do you say that stuff in your heart? Why can't your heart be like theirs? So crazy that they're willing to break a roof to come and experience me. You're standing before me. You could touch me, but you lack in experiencing me. While they break roofs and they long to experience me. At the end of the day, you have an issue in your heart. And as long as your heart continues with that issue, you're never going to live the way some of those crazy people up there live. And offer me that they're willing to do whatever it takes to live in the power of Christ. But you guys are just comfortable sitting, seen, but not celebrating. But they're comfortable coming to eat and drink and seeing something so that they may celebrate. What's wrong with your hearts? He asks them a question that he asks us today. What's wrong with your heart? Look what happens next. You question in this heart of yours, who am I to forgive this man? And who am I to say such words? But what is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to rise up and walk? Some of you in this room right now might say, rise up and walk. No. The answer is, your sins are forgiven. That's the hardest thing to do. The easiest thing to tell someone is just just get up and walk and be healed. But the hardest thing to do to someone is your sins are forgiven. Let me tell you why that's the hardest thing to do. Because there is no one that could ever forgive of sins. There's no one that could ever atone you of your sin but Jesus Christ your Lord. So when he says, what's harder? For me to heal him or for me to atone him? The answer is It's for me to atone of his sins. Because you see, I could empower any of you and any of you could heal anyone. But there's only one that has the power and the power to atone man of their sin. And that's me. When that revelation hits that room, people's lives are changed. Because right then and there, You live for the one that says this in front of you and you live in awe. Awe for the one who only can. Awe for the one who only is able. Awe for the one who you make your life. Twelve? You're not going with those thousands? Lord, um, Where else can we go? For you are the only one that has the words of life. You know what happened right then and there? Oh, eight to nine thousand people left because they didn't live in awe. But these stayed because their hearts were transformed and they're in awe of me. I know people come and go. And people catch fire and then get cold. And I've talked to a lot of young pastors and a lot of people that have left with young pastors and I always say one thing. And I had a conversation with my brother about this the other day, uh, a while back actually. And I said, the greatest thing that you will ever be able to tell in someone's life if 20 years passes and that man and that woman is still standing faithful and doing it, doing it in truth, preaching God's word. And I pray that when I'm in my 50s and 60s and 70s, because I don't plan to retire ever from opening up the word and sharing it, that when people look at me, they'll say, at least he stayed faithful. He never had the television station that he wanted, never was on the radio station that he probably desired, and 
He never had those cameras, maybe, like everyone else desires. But there is one thing that he did do, and that is that God desired, and that is for him to remain faithful in the awe of God. And if you could just do that with your life, my God. If you could stay faithful in the awe of God, it doesn't matter about anything else because the only thing that will matter in your life is the one who you see who stands before you and you will live in that celebration forever and his name is Jesus. He is our celebration. It's not the TV and it's not the radio and it's not the camera and we are going to get a bigger place but it's not even the bigger place. Our awe, our celebration, our exuberant joy is found in Jesus. He's our awe. He is our awe. You stay faithful in that awe. You're not going? Is that a trick question, Jesus? Go where? With them? No way. Because I don't go where the crowds go. I stand where Christ stands. My God, my God. Why? Because I'm all fully in love with you. I mean, all of you. And I'll never be able to walk away from that awe. I'm not done with this passage. Let me finish so I can finish the message. Immediately he rose up, the man, and he picked up his bed, which he was lying on, and he went home glorifying God in awe of God. Can everyone look at verse 26? This is my point that I really wanted to make. And amazement seized them all. They glorified God. And they were filled with awe. You want to know why they were filled with awe? Watch this. He's going to put it up now. We have seen. You have what? How come you're in awe? How come you're celebrating? How come I'm celebrating? Because I've seen extraordinary things. I've seen extraordinary things today. Do you want to know why some of you are so bored right now? It's like, oh my God. You don't see Jesus. I don't know how else to tell you with love. But once you see him, Oh my God, you will begin to celebrate him. You will begin to live in this awe. Like, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's what prayer is. Oh, that's what worshiping is. They were in awe. And they said the reason why they were in awe because they had seen extraordinary things. Here's my point, guys. You can celebrate today. Because there's still much to see. And if you've lost your awe for God, He desires to show you extraordinary things today. How many of you could say amen? But the question is, will you see? And will you get your awe back? You can still be in awe of God and be moved by His presence today. But will you see Him today? I end with John Wesley's quote. Can I read it to you? Are we going to put it up? Bring me a worm that can comprehend the man and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. I'm a worm in awe of my God. I'll never be able to comprehend him. So I stand in in awe If that's you today, stand in awe. Stand in awe. And I'll stand in awe of you. 
Sing it to your God.